0: Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Though we're just at the end of February, Black History Month, we drastically need enrichment to the cultures represented in our history studies year-round. We'll help you with that today on Spirit in Action. When he was an educator, Dwight L. Wilson's students told him that they hated history. He himself found fictional depictions of black people limited in scope. So when he retired, he took on the challenge of writing historical fiction that would come alive because he wanted to offer readers positive stories about black people. The result? His series, Essie Was My Mother. Dwight grew up in Ohio and was the first black student accepted to the Bangor Theological Seminary in Maine. He played important roles within the Quaker community through Friends General Conference and several Quaker and non-Quaker schools, not to mention his short story collection, The Kidnapped, his published book of Modern Psalms, and his work as a chaplain. And that just scratches the surface. Our focus today for Spirit in Action is on Sarah's Song, the first book in the Essie Was My Mother series. The story follows an enslaved family from their capture in 18th century Africa to the beginning of the American Civil War. In the course of the conversation, Dwight explains the close relationship between his own family history and his fiction, slavery, Quakers, strong women, modern racism, the importance of language, and his philosophy of writing. Dwight L. Wilson joins us by phone from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Dwight, having just had a conversation with you before we get on the air, I am so completely thrilled to have you here today for Spirit in Action.
1: Well, it's definitely my pleasure to be here. So <laughs>
0: We were talking, I was going to get ready to start the interview, but we covered a bit of our history. There's so much commonalities that we have in a thousand different ways. I'm quite amazed. But I have a sense that being the person you are, you find commonalities with people easily.
1: I search to do that whenever I meet somebody. It's a pleasure to me because to me, if you want to build what I call common unity, The only way to do it is find where the commonalities are. So you be nice, kind to everybody you meet, no matter where you are.
0: Now, we're going to be talking about just one of your ten books, the one that I've read, Sarah's song, Essie Was My Mother. We're going to talk about material in this book, but we're really going to be talking about the mission of your life, the things that led to writing this book. And now Sarah is born into a slave situation, and she ends up getting out of there, going north to Ohio. That's a sketch but we're really learning about slavery in here. So I've got a lot of questions for you. I am, I'm afraid, fairly ignorant about how slavery actually worked. I mean, I read Huck Finn, and I've read other books related to the area, but I already, in reading this book, learned a lot and still have questions about slavery. I'll start with the observation that the bibliography for this book includes 195 periodicals, books, writings that you were based on. I was stunned. Do you just read constantly? I-
1: <laughs> As I shared with you while we were preparing for this, my father-in-law just died on Valentine's Day, and both of us are addicted to books and reading. He had the most extensive library that I know of, at least 10,000 books. I don't know how many I have given away, but usually I'm reading something like seven, eight books simultaneously.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: Um, I, I told my wife, if I ever get up to 16, there's something wrong. And I have gotten there before.
0: The thing that's interesting about having that big of a bibliography is this is, I would call it historical fiction. To some degree, it's a fiction. But it includes so much fact of the situation. One of the things that stunned me along the way was the reference to the various Native American dialects that characters in the book use. You seem to actually know something about those languages. Do you actually know more than English?
1: English is not my first tongue. My first tongue is what I call ghettoese. But if you want to be successful in a white man's world, you better learn the English. I have a number of close friends who are from Native American nations, but the language that I have, I ran by them, that I use, I ran by them, or I got a hold of Native American books to learn the proper spellings, at least, of those languages. So those are all validated. And what I try to write, and I think you suggested that, is historical fiction. And it's important to me that things be historically correct, and I was encouraged in this area by former students of mine. When I retired, I retired from French School in Detroit, and every Monday would have the leadership students, the kids who are on the leadership council, eat in my office. I was a headmaster. Eat in my office on Mondays. So frequently I heard them say they hate history, and that really upset me (laughs) as somebody (laughs) who loves history. So I decided what I would do is I would write Sarah's song. And the series stretched out to now their the 6th to 7th is ready to, to be proofread. Uh, I've done the penultimate reading of it, but I'm working on another project now. I would write Sarah's Song, and I would put characters in it, many of whom were historical characters and others who were fictional, and make it come alive for them. So that was a real purpose of, of me, me writing it and hoping that instead of books like the Bluest Eye and The Color Purple that are frequently used as the first books to be read by affluent white students in independent schools that have incest and sexual abuse in there, the first ones that they read about black culture. I wanted them to read something that was positive and but also true. true. So that's where Sarah Song came from. And Sarah is actually my fourth, one of my fourth great-grandmothers, so she is not a fictional character.
0: How much information were you able to track down about her? You know, we're talking about the early 1800s when she's living. Is there documentation that was carried forward?
1: With Sarah, both of my grandmothers had heart attacks in 1980. And I decided that it was time, if if I were ever going to interview them, now was the time. At the time, I was General Secretary of Friends General Conference. And when I came, we were having a conference in Berea that year. The gathering was in Berea. And so I stopped in my hometown and I interviewed both of them. My paternal grandmother I knew was born in Lebanon, Ohio, and that that was a a major underground railroad area. I also knew that at least three generations of women in her family had been born there. So when I interviewed her to ask her how far back she could go, she couldn't answer that question. So she sent me to the historian in the family. This woman was 90 years old in 1980, so she's going back to the 19th century. I went over to Lebanon, and I started doing research there, and I proved three different ways that my fourth-grade grandmother, Sarah, was married to a Scots-Irish Quaker. So I went to see this cousin, Clarabel, and I said, Cousin Clarabelle, are there Quakers in our family? And she said, Why show? And I said, Well, but why didn't you tell me that? You know I'm General Secretary of Friends General Conference. She said, I didn't tell you nothing about the Baptist Southern Methodist, did I? Is Quaker supposed to be better? <laughs> <laughs> so, if you don't know the right questions, Mark, if you don't know the right questions, you won't get the answers. <laughs> so, so then she told me a lot of historical stories, oral history stories, but one of them that she told me that really fascinated me, but I just laughed about it at first. And when I would retell it, everybody else would laugh. She said, when my fourth-grade grandmother, Sarah, came up from Culpeper, Virginia, she came up with two of her brothers. And she said that her brothers found Southern Ohio to be so racist that they went back to Virginia. And, you know, we looked at that as a joke. Now, Southern Ohio's a tough place. Where I was born, where I grew up, when we go back, it's still a tough place. I had written maybe 15, 16 different drafts. And what I had done was I decided that nobody's going to be crazy enough to go back into slavery just because of racism. Either they went north or they went west, or they might have gone even east, but they didn't go south. So I would written maybe 16 different versions. And in it, what I had imagined, I discovered that in 1829, Blacks, they were not citizens. They could not vote. They couldn't be on a jury. They couldn't testify against a white man. They couldn't even be in a militia. But half of the blacks were kicked out of Cincinnati. Most of them went up to Wilberforce, Canada. So I decide, totally fictional, that I'm going to have these two brothers join the Exodus and have some slave catchers trailing along behind them, kidnap one, take them back into slavery, sell him, make a profit then have a an, an odyssey to go rescue him. So I'm at like this 15th, 16th draft, and my wife found this book called Forbidden Truth about interracial relationships before the Civil War. And when I'm reading it, I see that a slave named Robin from Culpeper, Virginia, was so in love with his wife that he went back to Virginia. And I said, i be then. That's my uncle. And the story was true. But it wasn't about racism. It was about love. (laughs) But I didn't change it. Uh I didn't change it because I I like my arc better. But whenever there's a funeral, and I do the funerals in our family, whenever there's a funeral, I will tell that story, and I will say, now you men have the responsibility to love your wife well enough that you would be willing to go back into slavery for her company.
0: (laughs) Well, that's amazing. That's amazing to dig those pieces out. And I assume these pieces have been coming out over your life, and you're 70 now, so you're talking about something when you're in your 20s, right, that you start getting these pieces. Why is the title of the series, Essie Was My Mother, where does that come from?
1: The reason I chose that title was, very few blacks do know, where their ancestors actually came from. And I chose the Fonti tribe in Ghana as being where mine came from, totally fictional. And I chose the name Essie because I liked the name. But I wanted that theme, Essie was my mother, because she was a woman who was taken by the overlords, kidnapped, and that's the title of my short story book, kidnapped and raped repeatedly. Uh, some of her children are, are mixed from the master and some of them from her husband. But historically, most of us are descended from women who had been raped by overlords and soldiers who who had overrun various nations. And so that woman who was appropriated and abused is a theme that if we were to delve truly into our history, it touches on most people in the world. So that's why I said Essie was my mother. And as I shared with you, I don't know who my fifth-grade grandmother was. I don't know any name. On that side, I know some names, but those are whites, because I do genealogical research all the way through. But um, anyway, that's why I chose Essie with my mother. Sarah was a real character.
0: And do you know really about Kofi Kenneth? He would be your fourth grandfather or something?
1: No, but I know about Charles Ferguson, who Sarah married. I know a lot about Charles Ferguson, the Quaker, who she married. And I know a lot about his parents and grandparents. I can go back to King Duncan, who Macbeth killed, on that line.
0: So there's a whole lot of fact in the story, Sarah's song, As he Was My Mother. There's some things I want to tease out, in particular since we're in Black History Month. It behooves us all to add a little bit to our information. We should do it all year long, mind you. But I'm just aware that these holes in my knowledge about slavery, for instance, one of the things that comes out in the book, is various points, slaves buying their freedom. And I think I had heard something about that, but I really didn't know how a person could buy their own freedom because my presumption was always that if you're a slave, you've got zero rights. Everything that's owned is owned by your master. Evidently, that wasn't exactly how it worked, or is that the way it worked in some cases? What happens in this story, how accurate is that to what really could happen or did happen?
1: It's accurate to what could happen. Um, There were a number of slaves who who bought their freedom, but the masters had as much autonomy on their plantations as modern people have in their own homes. So there was no one-size-fits-all for slavery. Some masters allowed slaves to work after hours to make money. Some masters would rent out slaves. Some masters would let their slaves go and live in urban areas where they might work even at various, in quotes, professions, um, as blacksmiths, et cetera. But they had to give a percentage of the money to the masters, and they were still owned, and they had to have papers that showed that they were still slaves. So um, there were any number of possibilities. It just depended on the master. All masters were evil, but all masters were not
0: vicious. And one of the things that, again, I had heard about it a little bit, but I, I still haven't wrapped my mind around it, is there were freed slaves living in areas where there's slavery and that doesn't quite work for me because I have maybe a vision of all slavery as being the worst of the vicious stuff that you were referring to, Dwight. So, was it possible? Was there a significant percentage or a minor percentage in areas like Georgia or wherever where there were freed slaves, freed African Americans living there?
1: Yes. I have one book that I had not used for Sarasam, but I used for subsequent books. Where a gentleman says, "My people were always free," and they're blacks that lived in Virginia. They had come over uh, as indentured servants, according to his book, and once they had paid off their indenture, they were able to stay in Virginia. At the time that I'm writing, anybody that was born after 1807, uh, if you were freed after that, you had to leave the state. So there are some people who actually owned their spouse. So that the spouse could stay, had papers on their spouse, so that the spouse could stay in the state because they had gotten their freedom before 1807.
0: Well, that's unusual. And what kind of percentage of the population would this have been of African Americans?
1: Very tiny, because the slave states did not want uh, to have freed blacks around. They thought that they would be a bad influence, and indeed they were. Many of them were working in the underground railroad right there in Virginia, in Kentucky. In Tennessee, again, there's just so many iterations. In in later books, I write about how we always think of slaves running north. Wrong, because those who were in the deep south, many of them ran to Mexico, which had made slavery illegal. Others ran to Florida and joined the Seminoles. The first Seminoles were black because it means runaway. And it was the Creeks who had broken away from after losing in Georgia, and Alabama that ran down there that became the Red Seminoles, and they worked together fighting against the United States Army.
0: I also think that New Orleans was a different place in the South. Uh, Maybe I've got that a little bit wrong, but because they had French history instead of English history, their approach to racial relations and slavery was a little different. You're right, and I write about that in a subsequent book. Well, I haven't read the other books, so could you tell me? I know you
1: haven't. <laughs> that was a teaser, I guess. I don't know, but yes, you're right. You're definitely right. And, and they had gradations that, that were mind-boggling of um, names for people, depending upon what percentage of white blood you might have. The one-drop uh, rule was still in effect, though. In New Orleans, there were blacks who owned over a 100 slaves. Same thing in the areas like Charleston.
0: It does put a different slant on it to realize, I mean, I I had already known that in Africa it was Africans selling other Africans to slavers to take to the Americas, right? I mean, I guess maybe whites could march into the land and find somebody and grab them just run off. But that often it was other Africans selling neighboring tribes.
1: Right, because... The Europeans did not penetrate Africa beyond the coast until well after the Civil War. So there were black middlemen that were selling them. But there were other Africans who would sell captives to the Europeans with no idea that slavery in the United States and the Americas was vastly different than slavery in uh, Africa. You're a human being. (laughs) You are a human being if you're a slave in Africa. And there are certain African countries where the only way, the absolute only way you could be prime minister was to be a slave. And can you guess why that would be so?
0: I cannot. You've got me mystified.
1: The reason for that was because you had no power base. So you could not organize a coup.
0: You can't usurp the power of the president or the king or whatever. Yeah, because
1: you had no power base. There were slaves that could marry the king's daughter. In the United States, we wouldn't even recognize Haiti because if Haiti were recognized after they kicked the French out, then they would have to be treated like diplomats 100% and be respected in Washington,
0: dance with whites in D.C., D.C. with slave territory too. You already mentioned something, Dwight, that I was curious about. The governor of Virginia recently got into trouble, both because he did blackface or possibly did blackface. I'm not sure exactly the facts, but he mentioned back in the early 1600s blacks coming in as indentured servants. People were lambasting him because, no, they were slaves, right? You're, You're trying to whitewash that. But indentured servitude was one option, and that was different than slavery at various places in the South? How did that go?
1: He may have gotten lambasted for but he was speaking the truth. Early on, there were blacks who came as indentured servants. You'd be a servant for uh, usually 7 to 12 years. Uh, You'd be a slave with no rights. Same was true with whites who came in. A lot of Irish, a lot of Irish came in that way. Germans came in that way. One of the books that I'm using, subsequent books, is The German Slave, and she was a New Orleans white woman, but they said that she had black blood, because by that time, slaves were only supposed to be black. They codified um, that probably about 100 years after the first slaves came into, in 1619, the first blacks came in as indentured servants, and they served um, for, I don't know how many years, 7 to 12 years. And then you would be freed after you did that. But the state of Virginia changed the law so that you were a permanent slave if you were black. But no whites were supposed to be permanent slaves, only blacks. But whites coming in as an indentured servant, that was still going on in the 1850s at least. And an indentured servant had no more rights than a slave other than she or he was going to be freed after they had served that 7 to 12 years.
0: Okay. And does that include sexual favors? Was an indentured servant lacking even the right to control their own body or children?
1: They didn't control their own bodies or children. And when English law changed so that the child belonged to the mother, the child's condition was tied to the mother, it was because of all those black women that were raped. So their children were not going to be free and follow the father, no matter how light they were. They were going to be slaves like their mother was. I can't find any evidence that there was any white man that was charged with rape before
0: the Civil War. Well, folks, we're speaking with Dwight L. Wilson today for Spirit in Action mm-hmm. The starting point, I guess, for me is reading Dwight's book, Sarah's Song, Essie Was My Mother. And that was only one of ten books that he's written, 11th on the Way, and there's more after that. He's rather prolific, and actually, if you look through his work history, you'll find an immense number of places where Dwight L. Wilson has touched people, made changes in this world amongst other things, his Magna Cum Laude degree was from Bowdoin in Maine. Bangor Theological Seminary is where he got his degree in ministry, and he's worked as an educator, a chaplain pastor, and a lot more than that, and we'll cover that in part of the second half of this interview. But you are listening to Spirit in Action, our website, northernspiritradio.org, with 13 and a half years of our programs for free listening and download there's uh links to our guests so you want to track down dwight l wilson and you want to track down sarah song and the other books come via nordenspiritradio.org and we'll connect you up also on our site there's a place to post comments we'd love to hear from you and know what you're thinking and what you're recommending and We want to make this two-way communication. There's also a donate button. That's how this full-time work is supported, not by corporations and not by government, but rather by you, the listener. So we're counting on you, even more so, I'm counting on you to support your local community radio station. Local media is so important, and it's becoming less and less the norm. Because at this point, six corporations own 90% of the media in the USA. And that's too much of a concentration, too limiting of points of view that you get. Your local community radio station provides you fresh and startlingly interesting information, both music and news. So start by supporting them. Again, Dwight L. Wilson is here today. We're talking about Sarah's Song, As He Was My Mother. And again, we've talked about this in the first part. This is historical fiction. It's got a whole lot of fact in it. You've had to imagine some parts of it. And I want to talk a little bit more about slavery, and then I want to hit some of the other aspects of this. So first of all, slaves could be free in some areas in the South. They could buy their freedom. They could could be free, depending on what their master was like. Was it also completely possible, Dwight, for a slave never to have an option to free themselves?
1: Yes. Most of the time you didn't have an option to free yourself. It depended on the master whether or not he was going to let you do that.
0: Were there any rights at all that were accorded to slaves that were mandatory?
1: None. Not the right to your body, not even the right to your own children. As a matter of fact, because of of white supremacy, no marriage between blacks was legal in the South. None. That's so that families could be sold apart and the master could still feel that he was a good Christian. So that happened. I've got a a copy of the will of one of my 2nd great grandmothers on the maternal side. She was born in 1834, and then in 1846, um, the master was dying, and he wrote in his will telling his wife who to keep and who to sell. My 2nd great grandmother on that side. Emmeline McCluskey, Emmeline Lay McCluskey. She uh, was 12 years old, and she was one of those that he told to keep. Well, they all only had first names. So I don't know if if her mother and father were sold, if her brothers and sisters were sold. I don't know. I know that she was kept. And in song there is a selling apart of family. And that was taken from that historical fact. And uh, since I'm the official genealogist on that side, I can tell you I've got almost 5,000 names who were descended from Emmeline Lane McCluskey. That day when her family was sold apart right in front of her eyes, I know it never occurred to her that she would be an ancestress, But she is a big deal in our family. And I tell that story to all of them.
0: It's amazing the amount of information that you've gathered and which is brought into the story. I was wondering about the language that you use, the manner of speaking. And you've got both slave language and you've got the language that the Quakers in the story and others use, some of which is Quakers speak back in the early 1800s when Quakers still engaged at least to some degree in plain speech with the the and thou and that kind of thing. How authentic is that language? I don't even know if we have a way to measure it properly.
1: I've researched those books, too. But one of the blessings that I had was we were in the dead of winter in 53, '53, 54. uh, We were evicted. My mother was evicted with uh, three children. I was oldest. I was six. And uh, she had a three-year-old and a a baby in arms. And we were taken in off the street by her parents. And her parents were the grandchildren of slaves. So I heard the language that the slaves spoke, even though my grandparents have said that that was the language that they were speaking. But I'll tell you how close we are to slavery. I told you, Emmeline was born in 1834. Her husband was born in 1824. I met their son because he was my great-grandfather. I went down to Georgia um, and spent time with him, with my granddaddy. And he came up to Ohio and spent time with us, and I was 12 when he died. That's a long stretch Mm -hmm. that I can reach back to, and I have always wanted to keep that language together. Now, for me to be successful in the white world, I had to learn the king's language, but I never wanted to lose that language. So uh, I have been offended many times when I see that people are writing in what they call a slave dialect, and they say D, D or Do's, and that's not how they spoke it. It was a a D-H, duh, duh, not a D. And one of the reasons they did that, I have studied African languages, and I don't see any the T-H in any of those languages. So they were trying to pronounce English, and they would say duh or that. And in Sarasong, that was the only one that I actually used the D-H in, but I, I used that there. And I want to keep my grandparents' language intact as much as I can. And obviously, I don't know Quakerese because I was the general secretary of Friends General Conference. And uh, even before I learned that I had the the Quaker history, I had friends who spoke in what we call plain speech. Uh, And I want to keep that alive, too, in the dialects. But not so much that people get lost. A little bit here and a little bit there is fine.
0: My purpose in doing Spirit in Action is to raise up light in the world to help world healing. It is somewhat surprising to some people that I think we really need to inspect our wounds in order to do healing. But actually, I just had a situation on this last night. I had a bandage on something and ripping it off, and my skin is all irritated. My wife is saying, yeah, we got to expose that to the air. I think we have to do that and look at things clearly before we can do the healing and just sweeping something under the carpet does not work. So some of this is undoubtedly painful. Could you say a little bit more, Dwight, about your history? You said you, you grew up speaking ghettoese, right? To be as an important force in the world as you've been in all the places where you've taught and worked as a Dean and, and organized programs how is it that your wounds are not leading you to revenge or anger or destruction, uh, but somehow being a healing force for the world?
1: I'm talk about it. I decided when I went to Maine, I was the first African American they had ever accepted in the theology school. The school was founded in 1807. I went in 1966, 1968, that I was not going to run from anything in my history. Because if you try to run from it, somebody's going to find it anyway. So, (laughs) for example, the last couple of times I've gone back to my hometown to run funerals, and I've officiated over the funerals for both of my parents, all three of the grandparents that I respect, eight aunts, four uncles, and five cousins, uh, most of whom were younger than I. The last two times I went back, somebody said, here's Dwight Wilson from the Projects. Well, the project was the best place we ever lived. I don't want to pretend I came from a bourgeois family. I didn't. In each branch of our family, we were the poorest on my mother's side, on my father's side. I had to work full-time while going to uh, college and graduate school full-time. My mother expected me to be a straight-A student, as she was, which is how I could be working full-time and going to school full-time at Bowdoin College and be a straight-A student. A was the lowest grade that I got while I was there. And so when people say you're prolific now, that's a joke to me because I do a (laughs) hell of a lot less now than I did when I was in school.
0: (laughs) This is what retirement looks like.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, because she didn't play. I mean, my mother punished me once because I got a 95 on a test. And I love my mother more than anybody I know loved their mother. She died in 75. I missed one question, one question on the daggum test. And so she um, spanked me, and I'm being nice when I use that word. And I said, Mom, why? It's still an A. And back in those days in my hometown, there were no pluses. It took a 95 to be an A, and 94 was a B. And she said, because you missed that same question on the midterm, and you, then you missed it on the final. Cannot afford to make the same mistake twice. Now I would be a liar if I said I never made the same mistake twice, but I did learn the lesson. But it took me to maybe forty years old before I said, "Now, wh- how did she know that?" And then I remember she would check my homework every single night. Remember, she only went to tenth grade. She got kicked out of school for getting pregnant with me. She checked my homework every single night, and she checked my tests also. So because she was on top of me like that, she made me anything good has happened in my life it is because of her and because he was writing me and she had this vision of who I should be. And she wanted me to lead the rest of them.
0: Could you say a little bit more about your family, your ancestry, because you know, we're, we're connected back to Essie and Sarah, right? We're, we're connected back that far. You have documentation about that. How did they get from Sarah to Dwight?
1: Well, Sarah got up to um, Southern Ohio, to Warren County, Ohio, and my hometown is 12 miles away from where she was. And so um, I've done research on them. They were not particularly educated or or sophisticated people. I was the first one. When I graduated from high school, when I was born, there was only one other person in my family who had graduated from high school in my immediate family on either side as my father's brother. My, as I share with you, my mother's goal was, was for me to go to college. She always told me that because she was the only one that my grandfather was going to send to college of his four children. Because she had been a straight A student before she was kicked out for getting pregnant, and I imagine he was going to send her to Oberlin. And I brought her to Oberlin when I was an assistant chaplain there, and she was so moved. That's one of the joys of my life because she was celebrating three years of being cancer-free, but two months later, maybe the next month, uh, it came back and she knew she was going to die, and indeed she did.
0: Part of the reason I'm asking is in Sarah's song, as you're writing, again, a lot of this is fiction. I'm not sure which piece is, but she's learning Latin along the way, and this is uh, the daughter of a woman who was brought in as a slave to the South, so... She's learning Latin, and I think Kenneth Kofi, her her father, is, he's made up, most of him. Yeah. Although Kofi is a real name. And by the way, you, I think I've told you this before. I lived in Togo, right next to Ghana, and Eve, which was the native language where I lived, Kofi is the name of a male born on Friday. Yeah, that's right. Koku was those born on Wednesday, and Kojo was Monday. So, Kofi, you know, it's, I feel like these are people I kind of know as you're writing about them.
1: Yes, you do, because I've never been to West Africa, so you know some things I don't know. So there we are. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: but part of the thing, I don't know if it was straining my credulity, but... The idea that Sarah's father, or maybe Sarah's mother's husband, I'm not sure which way to Yes, I see what you're saying, yeah. His effort originally, as described in Sarah's song, is instead of fighting to keep the home tongue, the home gods and everything, he decides on assimilation, at least at the beginning. And so he's going to learn Latin. Yes, yes.
1: That dilemma remains in the 21st century.
0: True. So could you talk a little bit about that? Because we're still fighting this out. I mean, is it like, you know, black power goes separate in the late 1960s was being fought over, as opposed to Martin Luther King, who uh, is like, we're all brothers and sisters. We We can hold hands together. And I think there's good points on both sides. Could you talk about your reactions, feelings, thoughts about that?
1: Well, well, the reason I I put that construct there, and I was helped by Phyllis Wheatley, who was the first known black poet. And Phyllis Wheatley uh, learned Latin and English as a slave. Phyllis Wheatley was a, a northern slave. And so if Phyllis Wheatley could learn uh, Latin and English, then why couldn't Kofi learn it? I thought about the um, slave masters, many of whom had... No other white person other than the foreman who was on the um, plantation. And so I had her slave master, the slave master of Fruits of the Spirit, be somebody who had really wanted to be a Latin professor. And he wasn't going to spend time with um, what he considered to be white trash overseer. And so he brought Sarah's father into his house, to learn Latin and English with him so he could polish his Latin and his English. His wife was infuriated over it, but I wanted that tension. And I also wanted the tension between him trying to be an American and his wife looking back, Essie, looking back toward Africa. And as I shared, that tension remains. Are you going to assimilate or are you going to be who you are? Uh, When I was headmaster of French school in Detroit, I wrote an article for the National Association of Independent Schools for whom I used to do multicultural education assessments in private schools from Connecticut to California. Uh, Assimilation, three times a four-letter word. So are you going to lose your culture in order to be successful in America? That remains a tension here. I taught pre-colonial Africa. That's why I won't let my ghettoese go. Um, that's why it's important to me to to know where I came from and to help other people know, because I have no reason not to be proud of who my people are.
0: I have a sense that, like me, you straddle the classes as well. I come from working class, right? My my family was definitely working class. Maybe we're upper-lower class or something, lower-middle class maybe, if you're generous. And I speak college-educated English, but I'm the only one out of the 12 kids in my family who does. No one else speaks like I do. Most of them say, I seen, you, I seen my friend yesterday, that kind of thing. And I sense that you have done that straddling as well.
1: My, the arc of my career has been, has been incredible. Do You think about it. When I went up to Maine, I'm the first African-American accepted in the theology school. The second year that I'm there, I start pastoring a Quaker meeting, and I'd never met anybody who admitted to being a Quaker before I went to Maine. I did not know about our Quaker history. So I am pastoring a meeting where uh, I'm the only black man in the congregation, and I'm the pastor. This is 1969, and it's the most powerful meeting in New England because two of the three employees – of New England Yearly Meeting belong to that meeting. And I'm the only black uh, man in the whole town. Um, that's the same town I told you that Stephen King uh, grew up in. Three years later, um, I am General Secretary after I left in 73. Three years later, I'm General Secretary of Friends General Conference. Less than one-tenth of one percent of Quakers are black in America, anyway. And to this day, I left office over 40 years ago. I'm the only African American that, that has ever been. The head. When I was, um, I started a program called New Jersey Seeds for Children Financially Disadvantaged, Academically Gifted, Regardless of Their Race. And they asked me, uh, when I started it, I had a board before I even started. Most of them were Wall Street people and uh, heads of private schools. So they asked me, are you going to, um, do you only want black children to be in uh, New Jersey Seeds? I said, no. Why would I say that? Both of my earned degrees are from the state of Maine, and I was associate dean in in, uh, West Virginia. I'm very familiar with white poverty, and I know sometimes it can be harder to be successful if you're born in a low-class white family than it is if you're born in a a black family. So I took kids from every race, excuse me, I took kids from from every race, and in time almost everybody on that board was from Wall Street. And I had (laughs) two guys on the board who had retired from wall street at age 40 so i'm dealing with nothing but high upper class people guys with, with tens of millions of dollars so i know all races i know all levels of black culture and white culture from the super rich to the lower class and one of my classmates at both Kenneth chenault has been president the black man has been president of um, american express for geez, 20 years and he and I were running buddies. Uh, he was one of my two closest friends while I was there. I don't mind the straddling uh, so long as I know who I am and so long as I am certain that I'm not selling out. It's not happening.
0: Well, one of the things that I think about straddling is I can speak multiple languages. I can speak back home. Mine would not I wouldn't describe as ghettoese, but I just call it down-home mm-hmm. Wisconsin. I speak that, and I speak college-educated, and I travel around the world. I've been in, I don't know, 20 different countries, and including living a couple years in Africa. All of that, I think, gives us more resources if we choose to hold on to them, and I'm glad that you're doing that, Dwight. Again, folks, we're speaking with Dwight L. Wilson for Spirit in Action today. Uh, His pedigree is long. Uh, His degrees at Bangor Theological Seminary, all the places where he's taught, where he's been dean, you'll find those links on Nordenspiritradio.org. There's one portion of the book that I want to make sure we talk a little bit about, And this has to do with the Quakers. And again, Sarah is married to a Quaker guy. That's both in the story and in reality. And so Charles, her husband, is Quaker. And so you have a number of people in the story who have important roles, including the the master at the fruits of the spirit plantation is kind of a fallen quaker i guess you'd say but his his cousins are quakers yes. yeah the family was people certainly have maybe heard that quakers were involved in the underground railroad at least to a significant degree is there any sense to which degree Quakers were a significant part of that. Levi Coffin uh is well sometimes described as, you know, president of the Underground Railroad, though I think that's probably presumptuous. How big of a role did Quakers play in the Underground Railroad?
1: Quakers played a major role, but most people working in the Underground Railroad were black, and we don't even talk about that. Right. Most of them were black. Because if you're on the run What's going to make you trust a white person if you've got good sense when you know that there's kidnapping happening all over the place? But, yes, Levi Coffin was rightly called the president of the Underground Railroad because he was super active, so active that Quakers kicked in Indiana kicked him out of Quakerism, read him out of the meeting, him and a number of others who were working on the Underground Railroad with him because they were breaking laws.
0: Yes, and so there's a lack of integrity because they're breaking laws in that case. How true to history is Patience Starbuck?
1: Oh, that's my girl. <laughs> Patience Starbuck should have existed. <laughs> she should have existed. <laughs>
0: And you talk about her coming from the Quaker whaling community on Nantucket Island was is a real thing. You're drawing on parts of real history there, and certainly there's the Grimke sisters and others who were involved in Underground Railroad. And people, because Quakers uh, were involved heavily in Underground Railroad and believed strongly that slavery was an evil, uh, they sometimes tend to whitewash the fact that Quakers still could be extremely prejudiced in terms of race. And that, I don't think, has necessarily ended, although there's been a lot of work on it over the centuries. What's your perspective on that, both historically and currently?
1: Yes, there were a number of of, uh, Quakers who were like Levi Coffin, who were read out of meeting because they were working with the Underground Railroad and because they were um, breaking laws and they were associating with people who were not Quakers. And there were people who felt that they should not be making an alliance with them. This is my feeling. I haven't worked to demonstrate it, but I would bet money that this is true if I were my gambling father. That one of the spits between the Hicksites and others uh, was because Hicks was so much an abolitionist, and he would break those laws to help people um, become free. And there were those who were too conservative to do that, who believed that blacks should be free, but they did not believe that blacks should be equal. And to this day, we continue to have problems with some whites who don't really want to see blacks as equals, and yet they still call themselves Quakers. One of the things that that bothers me, and and I've said this in a, a, a number of places, when somebody is applying for membership, we don't ask any questions about the degree of their racism. So Quakers are are as affected by racism as anybody else is, as long as we will not address it. We're doing a better job of addressing it. I just spent a year and a half still not looking at structural racism within religious society of friends. It's painful to me because I've been burned by it, and uh, you just have to call people on it. I'll give you just um, one example. I'm General Secretary of Friends General Conference. That's the CEO of our denomination. One of my executive committee members sees a picture in my office, and she looks and she says, this is a picture of me, my um, ex-wife, and uh, one of our children. She said, your head is too high. She doesn't know how much I had to pay, the price I had to pay to be able to hold my head up. Same person later on says to me, I don't like the way you walk. Really? What are you talking about?
0: That's crazy. Wow.
1: I don't like the way you are. I'm at a Quaker school. At this time, I'm assistant principal. One of my sons is in the lower school. I'm, I'm in the upper school. He's in the lower school. And we get called in by his teacher. And she says, um, I don't think your son is smart enough to be in our school. And she also says to me that he's threatening other children. I said, we, has he hit anybody? And she said, no, but, but he scares other children by the way he walks. And I said, Pee Wee Herman is not his example of maleness. <laughs> but he hadn't hit anybody, and he hadn't threatened anybody. I pulled him out, and I homeschooled him. That same child has a, uh, was an honest student while he was in um, junior college. He got bachelor's from University of Maryland. He has a master's in social work from Temple. He owns his own business but he wasn't smart enough to be in a Quaker school. I uh, was at another Quaker yearly meeting. I'm, I'm speaking, and uh, one of my sons, uh, this is another one of my sons. I have four of them. He is in the uh, children's program, and one of the women takes me aside, and she says, uh, I hate to tell you this, but I believe your son is retarded. Okay. Same son. Same son. A bachelor's degree from Princeton, a doctorate, and a JD from the University of Virginia. We've got a long way to go.
0: Sure. And part of my point about that is, as I said earlier, you've got to look at your wounds. you got to bring them into the air if you're going to actually heal them. And so that means admitting that you've got problems. And so I think it's good that we actually can speak about them, talk about them, and therefore be able to deal with them. The racism... The point of view, I grew up as an underprivileged person because I was from a working class family. And in the town where I lived, that made me on the bottom of the stack, right? On the other hand, even with that lack of privilege, there are a lot of people in this country I knew I was well-privileged over. Uh, And I really think everyone should have the opportunity of living as a minority, uh, by having had my two years living in Africa, I was a privileged minority, mind you. I had money, and people generally looked up to me. But there were times when I actually knew my life could be threatened because I was the white person in my village.
1: And I, too, have been privileged. I have been privileged. There have been times when my wife has said, you shouldn't say that. But it's true. You think about this. I'm the first child of a mother who's, been, who's a straight-A student who was kicked out of high school. She taught me how to read by the time I was three years old. By the time she was 23, she'd already had five kids. She could not spend that much time with them. I'm the first child. I'm the first grandchild. I'm the first nephew. I changed diapers for all of my brothers and sisters, many of my first cousins. My grandfather took me places that he did not take them. So I was in a privilege. I knew that I was a golden child while I was growing up. Knew it! And is it an accident that because she had all that time to spend with me when she did not have it to spend with the others, that my career has been more successful? No. And when I listen to my brothers and sisters tell me things that, uh, or go silent when I talk about things that, that I experienced when I was growing up, and I carry guilt for that.
0: Yeah. It's hard. We, I don't really know what to do about carrying guilt because you've been successful. A lot of times it's happenstance. I mean, I didn't determine what IQ I got, right? I only determined perhaps how hard I studied, but maybe that was a function of my home. I have a feeling that it probably does not help us if we say, I'm privileged or I'm not privileged, therefore this doesn't matter. I think whatever we try and whatever we can believe in Makes a difference, and we still have to look at reality and wonder what we can do to make it better.
1: Absolutely, I agree with you so much, Mark. And and I never say to my brothers and sisters I was privileged. What's that going to do for them? Nothing except make them feel bad. Say, well, oh, she favored. I knew she favored him, or whatever, and it, it does nothing. How it helps me is it it reminds me that there are there are people who did not get the same opportunity that I did, and it's important to me that I see the opportunity, which is why I came to friend school in Detroit to be their head. When I had all kinds of friends, including my ex-wife's father, who said, you'd be a fool to go to Detroit. You would be a fool to go to Detroit. But I wanted those kids to have opportunity.
0: Well, it sounds to me like you're a blessed fool, and that's the best kind, just <laughs> a fool for God. And I want to thank you for coming here today. Again, folks, we've been speaking with Dwight L. Wilson. He's author of a historical fiction book called Sarah's Song, Essie Was My Mother, based actually on characters out of his own family tree. In addition to his degree at Bangor Theological Seminary, he's taught at a number of colleges and high schools. He's got 10 books currently, working on 11th and maybe the 12th. All of those links will be on northernspiritradio.org. And Dwight, it has been absolutely stunning and wonderful to be with you here today for Spirit in Action.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you, Mark. and I appreciated the interview and. The conversation before off the radio.
0: (laughs) Well, let's have some more, but we'll let our listeners go on to other things. Follow Dwight L. Wilson via his website, dwightlwilson.com. A big thanks to Catherine Thomas for production assistance on today's program, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. Our lives will feel yeah. the echo of our.